Our gospel lesson this morning is going to come from Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. We'll be reading Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Now, I invite you to stand as you're able in body or in spirit for the reading of our gospel lesson. When the Pharisees heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of the great experiences in my life, one of the things in my life that I'm most thankful for is my seminary experience. My, my seminary experience was just a great gift to me in so many ways. If you see me carry on on Facebook with my friends, most of the friends I carry on with are, are seminary friends. Uh, seminary was perhaps for me the most formative experience in my life. And I want to talk a little bit about where I went to seminary and why it was so important to me and really shaped how I view and do ministry to this day. I went to a seminary in Memphis called Memphis Theological Seminary. If you're familiar with Memphis, it's right in Midtown. It's on the corner of Union and East Parkway, right there, smack dab in the middle of of Midtown Memphis. Love it. I love Memphis. It's just a fun town to me. Um, But my seminary that I went to, and for those of you who don't know, seminary is the theological training that pastors receive. Um, Some pastors major in Christian education in college, if you go to Mississippi College or Millsaps or something like that. I went to Mississippi College, but I majored in chemistry. So my degree is in chemistry because I was going to be a doctor. I didn't surrender to the ministry to my junior year of college. So I tell people, I put my chemistry degree to good use being a United Methodist pastor. And the reason why I did not change my degree to Christian education when I surrendered to the ministry was I was a junior. I was already, I could see the finish line. And so I told myself, well, I'll get the God stuff in seminary. So I went to seminary, and the way it works is seminaries are typically either owned by or affiliated with a denomination. So uh, Candler on the campus of Emory is a United Methodist Seminary. So a lot of Methodist pastors go to Candler or Perkins on the campus of SMU, Duke, you know, uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary is the big Baptist seminary. A lot of my Baptist friends went there. Uh, Asbury in Kentucky is not owned by a denomination, but it's affiliated with a lot of them, and it's approved by the United Methodist Church. The seminary that I went to, Memphis Theological, is actually the official seminary of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Don't know how many of you have ever heard of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. It's a smaller Presbyterian denomination based primarily in the Cumberland Gap area of Tennessee. But there used to be, any of y'all remember back in the old days on McDowell Road, there was that church out front with the Bible on it. Like when you pass, if you remember that church, that was a Cumberland Presbyterian Church. I think it was the only one in this area. Great denomination, smaller denomination. Um, But the seminary that I went to was very ecumenical, meaning there were a lot of denominations on campus. So the majority of the the students on campus were United Methodist, and the majority of the United Methodists were from Mississippi. So I had a lot of future colleagues that I went to school with. But what was unique about MTS was that it was a commuter seminary. 
They didn't have on-campus housing. So what happened is this. I was serving my three little Delta churches. I lived, in the, I lived in the parsonage, and two to three times a week, I would drive from Cleveland up to Memphis for class. Classes were structured in three-hour blocks, so you could go up on, say, a Monday night, take a class, spend the night in the luxurious Red Roof Inn, and then, and then take three classes on Tuesday, and that would be your 12 hours. That was typically how it works. That was how most students did it. One of my best friends in seminary was preaching in New Augusta. You know where New Augusta is? It's right outside Hattiesburg. He would drive from New Augusta to seminary. So I had it easy. I was driving from Cleveland. I just had to watch out for the speed trap towns and Shelby and Alligator and Clarksdale. So. But what was so neat about it being a commuter-based seminary was this. The majority of my classmates, all of us, we were preaching in churches. So most of our, part of our seminary time was spent learning. So this is what Wesley said or Augustine or whatever, learning the stuff. But then a lot of our time was spent reflecting. What's working in your church? How does it work for you there? Okay, we just talked about this subject here. Well, how does that play out in our local church? We learned, in fact, the greatest gift that my seminary gave me is the gift of theological reflection. Theological reflection might be the most important, forgotten discipline of the church. And I think it may be one of the most important disciplines that the church needs in this moment. Theological reflection was what my seminary taught me. It was the ability to take situations, to take things that happen to you, to take events, and to think through them, not through the lenses of politics, are not through the lenses of culture. But let's take these situations and think through them theologically. In other words, what do we believe? What are our doctrines? What do we hold as our beliefs? And then let's think through what happens or what does happen theologically. Let's apply our beliefs to the situation. And that's a beautiful thing because then it makes sure that you're thinking about what you're doing. And then what you want to do, it works both ways. What you then want to do is you want to take your actions and make sure that what you're doing is aligned to your beliefs. You take your beliefs and use them to reflect upon what happens in your life. But then you take your actions and you make sure your actions align with your beliefs. That's theological reflection. And I think that's one of the great disciplines that we need in this moment. Because I think right now, in so many ways, and in so many places, our world finds itself too reactive. We act before we think. We, and we don't even really think. We just, we get angry or we get frustrated, or we get whatever, and then we base our actions not in our beliefs, but in our emotions, or what we feel, or what we feel peer pressure to do. How many times in your life have you seen a celebrity or a regular person do something, and then they'll say, oh, I, that, I shouldn't have done that, that wasn't who I am. 
You heard that before, that excuse, haven't you? Well, that wasn't who I, I that wasn't who I was. What happens then is that may be right. That may not be who they are. That's exactly right. But what happens is their actions are flowing not from who they are, but from their reactive nature. By the way, that's called being human. It's also called being married. Come on. You folks been married? How long have you said something? Oh, I didn't say that. Oh, that came out wrong. And when does it happen? Usually, there's a great acronym in addiction therapy. HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Typically, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you say the things you regret, or you do the things you regret. One of the gifts that I think the church offers is this gift of theological reflection, which allows us to think through what we're doing, but also make sure what we're doing aligns with what we believe. And so now let me be transparent here. You're probably not aware of this. The United Methodist Church has had some turmoil recently. Are y'all, are y'all aware of that? Have y'all read that in the news? There's been some conflict in the UMC recently. The reason why, let me be very clear, I'm not, I'm, I, I do not intend to turn this into a UMC pep rally because let me be very abundantly clear. The UMC, the United Methodist Church, are no other denomination saves. Jesus Christ saves. When we get to heaven, Jesus is not asking what denomination we're part of. He's asking, do you know me or do you not? That's the question of eternity is, do you know Jesus or do you not? So let me be very abundantly clear about that. I do not want to turn this into, I've never been a flag waver of anything, but I love my country and I love my Jesus. But I've never been one to jump up and down about things like that. However, let me say this. One of the reasons why Andy Stoddard felt compelled to stay United Methodist was because I really and truly think our theological method, the way we do theology, produces the kind of balanced Christians that I think our world needs right now. What we call the Wesleyan quadrilateral, the way John Wesley did theology, the way John Wesley theologically reflected, I think is the healthiest the best, and frankly, the most evangelical way to bring folks to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I really believe that. And so the next few weeks, I want us to talk together about what it is. How do we do theology? How do we do this life together? How do we structure our lives in a way that makes sense theologically? So I want to talk about that in the coming days. And as I, as I thought about this series, I began to pray like, Lord, what do you want me to call this? How should this be termed? And the word I just kept landing on y'all was balance. Balance. I think the way we do theology creates balanced Christians that are not swung back and forth by reaction and by the winds of change, the winds of the world, but grounded in some holy things. Because what do we see here in our scripture we read today? What is the purpose of our faith? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. To be disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. That is why we exist. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Bryant, used to always ask this question. Does what you believe and what you do make you a better disciple of Jesus Christ? Does what you believe... And does what you do make you a better disciple of Jesus Christ? That's the question we must always be asking ourselves. That is the theological reflection we must do. Is does what we do and what we believe 
make us healthy, whole, balanced disciples of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the purpose of all this, y'all. That's the goal of all this, is to make disciples for the transformation of the world. That's what we're about. And I believe the, the West, what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, the four things John Wesley used for theology, I think those things shape us, inform us, and give us the tools. Give us the tools to do proper theological reflection. Give us the tools to encounter the world as it comes to us. Encounter situations as they come to us. Encounter tragedies as they come to us. Encounter trials as they come to us. These gifts give us the tools so that when life happens, we aren't caught flat-footed. But we have in us the tools and the gifts needed to properly reflect upon what we're experiencing to draw us closer to Jesus Christ. And they give us the tools that when we apply them, it helps us make sure that our actions correspond with what we believe. This Wesleyan quadrilateral. So the next four weeks, we're going to talk a little bit deeper about each one of these things, what they are and how they relate to Scripture. But I want to tell you what they are. Give a real quick understanding of what they are. There's scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Okay. Of those four things, if you can picture a square, each one has a quadrant, if you will. And I had one of my mentors used to always tell me, one of the gifts of our theology is that we can stay balanced in that these three, four quadrants help us stay balanced in understanding who God is. But first, we we need to understand that this is important. Scripture is primary. These are not four equals. Scripture's primary, okay? Scripture is at the top. Scripture's primary. The other three things help us understand Scripture. But like, this is not an equal vote, (laughs) you know? You don't say, well, Scripture gets outvoted. Scripture doesn't get outvoted. That's not the way this works. You know, if you're familiar with um, how it works, um, there are some um, stocks uh, they're called weighted shares, where like if you have a weighted share of a stock, your vote counts double or triple or whatever. Well, Scripture's a weighted share. It, it's the primary. It's the primary source. Without Scripture, everything falls apart. Scripture is what it's all founded upon. Because the Bible tells us, Colossians 1.15, that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's what it tells us in Colossians. So in other words, to know the Father, we must know the Son. Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. To know the Father, we know the Son. Great. How do we know the Son? How do we know who Jesus is? How do we know Jesus' character? How do we know Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? How do we know who Jesus is? Scripture. So Scripture forms our theology. Our theology must be based upon Scripture. Scripture is primary. We're talking more about that in the coming days. But here's the genius. Scripture forms our theology, yes. But let's also be clear. Our theology forms how we read Scripture. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's, let's go back to our psalm this morning. I, wasn't that a beautiful psalm? Isn't Psalm 139 one of your favorite? It's one of my favorite psalms. Where could I flee from your presence, O God? Even if I make my bed in hell, still there you'll find me. Love one th- Psalm 139. One of the best psalms of the Bible, in my opinion. One of my favorite ones. It's, it's going great. You knit me together in my, in my mother's womb. You know me. You form me. Not a word to my mouth before it's spoken. Oh, it's good stuff. And you're, you're probably like me this morning as Sherry Beth is reading. You're like, this is great. And then it gets to this, Lord, I hate them. I started chuckling when she said, I mean, did you hear what it said? Like, Lord, I hate them with a perfect hatred. 
There are these psalms in the 80s and 90s called the the Invictus Psalms, which basically say this, Lord, why hadn't you killed them yet? Lord, hurry up and kill them. Like, there are psalms that say that. Psalm 137 is one of my favorite psalms, and it ends, blessed are those who take your children and dash their heads against the rocks. Like, the gift of theological reflection is that we base our totality of who we are upon Scripture. But our theology helps us understand the parts that we struggle to understand. Because let me be clear, Sherry Beth advocated for hatred this morning, didn't she? I mean, didn't she say that right over there? I believe that God's word is inerrant or without error. I do not believe that my interpretation of scripture is without error. That's the difference. So we apply tradition, reason, and experience to the scripture. We see this. Theologically, one of the gifts that we understand with scripture is that one of the things you can do when you read the Psalms, the Psalms are books of worship. So one of the things I was taught in seminary. Anytime you hear in the psalm, you hear enemy. Who does the Bible say our enemy is? What's it say in Ephesians? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the powers, the principalities, the rulers of this dark age. My enemy is never another person. My enemy is the devil. That's who our enemy is. Our enemy is not another person. No other person's ever my enemy. My enemy is the devil. So when we read a psalm like 139, what, she's, what the psalmist is pointing us to is to hate evil. Not to hate another person, but to hate evil. And then even when another person is committing evil, we must understand theologically that that person himself, themselves is, not, is being controlled by darkness. And that our goal as a Christian is not to hate that other person, but our job as a Christian is to point that other person to Jesus. Because that person, you know what Jesus does to that person? He died for them. He died for them. He loves them and he wants to save them. So our job is to take that person that is committing evil and point them to Jesus so that Jesus can save them and then they can stop committing evil. That's how we take our theology, our doctrine, what we believe about the goodness of God and apply it to Scripture. So our Scripture forms Our scripture forms our theology. But our theology helps us understand our scripture. Because as I said this week, you can have two Bible-believing Christians, one of whom believes in predestination, and one of whom believes in free will. And they both believe the Bible. The theological lenses that we read scripture through helps it make sense. And I truly believe that our theological method, starting with scripture, but then using tradition, the teachings of the church, what did Wesley say? What did Calvin say? What did Aquinas say? What did Augustine say? What did my mama say? What did your mama say? Those things that have gone before us help us understand scripture, taking with it our experience. What have we experienced? What have we experienced? For instance, 
The Bible says this, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your perfect heavenly father know how to give you good gifts? He said, if any of you has a child and they ask for bread, would you give them a stone? Of course not. Think about the person you love the most, your child, your parent, your spouse. This person you love the most truly and deeply asked for something, are you going to give them a snake? Of course not. You're going to do your best to give them what they need, right? That's just called loving somebody. Well, if you who are sinful know how to do that, how much more does your perfect heavenly father know how to give you good gifts? In other words, the love you feel for that person you love the most, that's just a fraction of God's love for you. So when we love somebody, we can experience what that feels like. And then that experience helps us better understand God's love. And then our reason. Jesus says today, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. You know, we're not called to turn off our brains. We're called to think. We're called to think. Theology. We're called to think about these things. That's okay. We're called to have conversations. Y'all, one of the highlights, one of the things I love, you've probably got sick of me talking about this. One of the great joys of my life is my Sunday school class that I teach on Sunday mornings. And what I love about it is I've never done a poll, but based off the conversation I've had with everybody in there, we don't agree on everything. There are a variety of opinions in my Sunday school class. And I love that because you know what that does? That makes us better. That helps us think about things. That helps us understand more. I love having conversations with people who may disagree with me. You know why? It makes me better. It makes me think about what I believe. Because what happens is if we don't think about what we believe, what happens when we get outside the bubble of church and go into the real world and encounter tragedy or trial or hurt or loss? And if we've not thought about what we believe, our faith could then fall apart. When we think about these things, we help to understand them better and we have a foundation on how to handle these things. Y'all, I think, I think, I believe with all that I am, the gospel is beautiful. The good news of Jesus Christ is beautiful. And beauty attracts beauty. Y'all, our world's so dark. It's so dark. Watch the news. It's dark out there. What the world needs now is light. What the world needs now is hope. What the world needs now is beauty. What the world needs now is that gracious, beautiful balance that calls people to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I believe the theological method that our church lives with is not perfect. There's an old joke by, uh, by, I read it on the internet, I don't know who said it, but said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect method. There's no perfect anything. The only hero of our story is Jesus. Not me, not you, but Jesus. He's always the hero. So our method is not perfect. Our church is far from perfect. But I do think it produces balanced, beautiful Christians who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I believe truly and totally that's what our world needs now. So I'm looking forward to, talk, to unpacking these four methods of Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience with you in the coming days. And I can't wait to uh, see what we learn together as we reflect upon what it is we believe and how we believe it. Let's pray.